Romans 8, 31 through 39. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give up everything else? Who will bring any charges against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes. Who was raised, who is the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of God? Will hardship, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ Jesus. In July, I had the privilege to be in Lebanon to learn and to write about the people that were carrying out the work of Mennonite Central Committee in response to the Syrian war. And one of the people I spoke with by Skype, because he was in Syria, is Reverend Ibrahim Nasir, pastor of the Arab Evangelical Presbyterian Church of Aleppo. On Sunday, July 21, I asked him to describe a day in his life. And this is what he told me. This morning I woke up at 4.30 to the sound of a mortar exploding about one kilometer from my house. I said to myself, a new day has started. This is something normal in Aleppo. I checked on the children. I checked on the electricity, hoping to see electricity, but I failed. I went to the kitchen, hoping to get a cup of tea or Nescafe to drink and to wash my face and to prepare my family for church. But urgently I had the call from one of our members. He was injured because of the shelling. I got my shoes and got to the car quickly and took the man to the hospital. By the way, there are no government hospitals like there used to be, only private hospitals, which means treatment costs a lot of money. Thanks to God, they dealt with his wounds very quickly, and to be honest, he was in the church service later that morning. He gave a testimony saying, you may think negatively that I was wounded, but I am here today to say I am thankful to God who protected me and gave me life today. The church building where we worshiped, this one, before the war was bombed, was destroyed. So we now meet in the fifth floor of an apartment building. I can say proudly that 150 persons who attended the church service, there were 150 persons who attended the church service this Sunday. Two Sundays ago, while we were worshiping, a mortar hit the apartment building, but God saved us. Nothing happened to us, and we continued our worship there in these two weeks. Today, I preached about the gifts that God has given us. Everyone has to do the utmost he or she can do during this situation with whatever God has given him, even with whatever little he or she has. No one can say, I don't have because God has given us even a tiny thing. We can do a lot with this tiny thing in this situation, in this community. 
Although the crisis has had a negative impact on the community, people feel the need to be close to God and to be involved in the life of the church. Maybe part of it is because of the support we are offering to them through MCC's supply of food baskets and monthly allowances. I need to say something very important. I have been serving this church since 2008. Being a pastor in this crisis is not a matter of preaching only. It is a matter of being with the people in this difficult time. At least if we cannot help by giving money or meet their physical needs, at least we can be with them, at least pray with them, at least try to comfort them with the word of God and prayers. After the service, I received another call about two older women who didn't have any water for bathing and laundry. Aleppo's public water system has been severely damaged during the war, so like everyone, the women had to buy water to drink and to clean and to flush the toilet. Now, they had not one centimeter of water left and no money to purchase it after paying for their rent and medicine. I got my family and we went looking for someone to buy them water, which I am sorry to say cost a lot of money. We need 300 US dollars for a family of five to have drinking and washing water for a month. We arranged to get them enough water to get them through the month. After that, I received again two calls asking me to go quickly to look for a home for two people whose houses were damaged from the mortar attack that morning. We called people from church who were out of town for a week, and they agreed that the two people could use their apartment temporarily. Hopefully, we can repair the damaged houses soon. Sorry, lost a place. I am thankful to my wife and my family who are willing to be with me in Aleppo during this crisis. My wife is a teacher and she is my supporter. She continues to go to school to teach even though her income only covers the cost of transportation because fuel is so very expensive. She goes to give a message to the children to teach them to stay away from violence and to give them a place where they can be taught instead of being on the streets carrying weapons. My wife and I have three children, two girls ages 12 and 6 and one boy 10. This situation has forced itself over their lives. They don't know what is playing outside. They know studying, being in the house, praying, asking God to save them from all the danger around them. Sometimes I feel like I am not doing the proper duty of a parent. My children, when they hear a lot of bombing, they come to our room. They try to sleep in our room to feel a little bit secure. Always we teach them that although it is difficult in this time, our security is in God. We suffer because Jesus suffered, and the day of resurrection will come someday. And we believe we have a lot left to do in this community. When we send our children to school, believe me, we say goodbye to each other because we don't know if we'll have the opportunity to see each other once again. Last winter, two times mortars hit the school, but God saved our children and the students there. This is every day. The situation in Aleppo is very difficult. And I just talked to our representatives in Lebanon and they said it's even worse than it was when I talked to them in July. Even what I have said doesn't describe fully what is going on. The needs are very, very, very huge. We as Christians in Aleppo are doing a lot to keep Christians in this area. Otherwise, most of them will be the burden on the West because they will leave to get out of this bad situation. Thus, we have to work hard with our partners around the world to keep Christians here where they were a light in the world for centuries, starting from the time of Jesus Christ until now. 
You know, we are not only supporting Christians, we are supporting the whole community. Muslims, Christians, Kurds, Armenians, all those who knock on our door and ask for help. We try to do even a little, but we don't send them away with nothing. Believe me, we never think in ways that this is Muslim or this is Christian. We think differently. We think we are here for a message, and this message should be clear for everybody, that God loves all the people, and I insist on the word all, all the people. We are called to live in hope. If we don't have hope, we die. We trust our God that he will not leave us in this situation. One day we will live in peace and we will live in joy. We trust God, we do our job, and that is praying, taking care of each other, reading the Bible, and being an instrument of love and peace in this community. This is what we do, and this is the hope we live in. Please don't forget us by your prayers. I will be reading from Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. Oh, that my head were a spring of water, and my eyes a fountain of tears, so that I might weep day and night for the slain of my poor people. Oh, that I had in a desert a traveler's lodging place, that I might leave my people and go away from them. For they are all adulterers, a band of traitors. They bend their tongues like bows. They have grown strong in the land for falsehood and not for truth. For they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, says the Lord. Beware of your neighbors and put no trust in any of your kin, for all your kin are supplanters, and every neighbor goes around like a slanderer. They all deceive their neighbors, and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongues to speak lies. They commit iniquity and are too weary to repent. Oppression upon oppression, deceit upon deceit. They refuse to know me, says the Lord. And now from Colossians, Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. For in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have come to fullness in him, who is the head of every ruler and authority. As a child, I often heard mission described as letting our light shine. Uh, don't hide it under a bushel, our teachers told us. How do we let our light shine into the darkness of war? 
This has always been difficult, of course, but it has become more challenging that, than any time in my 66 years of living because war has become such an integral part of our culture and our economy. The sobering text from Jeremiah that Carol just read helps us understand why it is so difficult. We have this astonishing ability to teach our tongues to speak lies and not even know that we are doing it. This has many applications, of course. Certainly war is one of them. Not so long ago, our country had a strong tradition against going to war. The majority of Americans were opposed to becoming involved in World War I, were opposed to becoming involved in World War II. Uh, during my high school and college years, the war uh, against Vietnam was very, very controversial. My point is that at an earlier time in history, usually when this country go to, went to war, it happened after a long and difficult debate. It's very different now. <clears throat> the U.S. military has been engaged in war during 21 of the 25 years since the Soviet Union started coming apart in 1989. And the war on terror has been uninterrupted for the past 14 years. The Pentagon has told Congress that it should expect this war to continue for several decades ahead. So think about it. If you're middle-aged in your 50s or your 40s or your 30s, there probably will never be a time in your life again where our country will be at peace. During war, truth is the first casualty. This is a very old saying, and it reflects the truism that when nations are fighting wars, telling lies is normal. Normal. So now our country is always at war and is always telling lies. We never have the time when the soldiers come home and the factories stop making swords and make plows instead, and when journalists insist that the truth be told. War and deception have become the new normal. Fourteen months ago, our president said the United States must attack Syria, and he showed us pictures like this one to explain to us that the Syrian military had killed many children with sarin gas and that something must be done. But the American people were against the plan to attack Syria and remarkably stopped the rush to war. Wow. Since then, we've learned the government of Syria did not kill those children. We can't be sure who did. Yet today, America is at war in Syria, and the American people generally support it. This is a picture that caused people to change their minds. It shows a member of the Islamic State preparing to execute an American reporter in eastern Syria. 
And this is a picture of Yazidi refugees fleeing to Mount Sinjar in northern Iraq. Pictures like this one persuaded the American people that the military from the United States needed to go back into war in Iraq. Here is a picture of that. As it turned out, the Kurds protected the Yazidis, but no matter, the war our leaders wanted a year ago has now arrived. And these pictures and the media campaign around them made the difference. Our conference leaders see a problem here. When your country is always at war, always telling you stories that make war a moral necessity, always showing heartbreaking pictures of innocent people being killed. It impacts how we see the world. We lose our grasp on what is true, and we lose our moral bearings. Yes, we continue to oppose all wars, but we are not immune to the power of these images. 10, 20, 30, 50 years of them on our screens will change us, just as it will change our neighbors. So last month, the Bishop Board unanimously took an action about this. It asked denominational leaders at Mennonite Church USA to bring to the delegates of the next assembly in Kansas City a resolution about how we as a church should let our light shine in a country that is always at war. The Bishop Board said, we remain committed as a church to the belief that participation in war is contrary to the will of God. Yet when terrorist acts breed fear among us, we experience uncertainty about how to make our belief relevant to neighbors and friends and part of the good news we have found in Jesus Christ. When our young men were being drafted into the military, our opposition to war translated into a very specific witness. But now we need renewed understanding of how to live out the new creation that is in Christ Jesus. And it went on to say that we need a renewed commitment, a renewed, sorry, congregational emphasis on trusting God in the way of Jesus, not violence, for our security. For this teaching to be effective, it must challenge our society's commitment to the moral necessity of violence. It must challenge our government's purposes in engaging in war. And it must challenge our own, often secret, reliance on our country's military to ensure our safety and security. So perhaps a resolution like this will be on the agenda in Kansas City. I hope so. We can help make this happen if we as a congregation were to endorse it too. How else can we let our light shine in the darkness of war? I find it encouraging to join the group witnessing against the Kill Command Center in Montgomery County. It lifts my spirits to be there, and it bears witness to that community. It also helps me to meet monthly with a group that talks about the stories that the media is telling us and to compare notes about the case being made for war. It gives me the information and the courage to have similar conversations in other social settings with neighbors and friends. It's powerful to be in a relationship with people who have experienced war. Linda just told us that. 
Soldiers living in our own community have had this experience. Last year, the Lancaster Church of the Brethren hosted a public meeting that included families of vets talking about their experiences. I know Titus is involved or is active in planning a way for Mennonite congregations to enter this sort of experience. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy or empty deceit, Carol read. You have come to fullness in Messiah Jesus, who is the head of every ruler and authority. War has taken our culture and our economy captive. And it is reaching for our friends, for our neighbors, and for us. May we have the wisdom and courage to bear witness to our conviction that because of Christ Jesus, we do not believe the lies. He has shown us a better way. now from Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand, and we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces character I'm sorry, that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Who is my neighbor? I know we all know the story uh, that Jesus told of the Good Samaritan, and I know there have been countless sermons on the subject, but that's still the question that kept popping into my head when I thought about what I'd want to share from my experience a few months ago. I visited MCC peace-building projects in Nigeria and Bosnia. I'll be sharing this morning from Nigeria. Even more than who is my neighbor, I keep asking, how long should I think of them as my neighbor? I spent the first week of May in Nigeria. At that time, the US news media was talking nonstop about Nigeria, mostly about Boko Haram and the 200 plus schoolgirls who had been abducted. You may recall hearing about bomb blasts in a bus station in Abuja. Even though I flew into and out of Abuja, most of my week I spent in Jos. People have asked me if I felt safe traveling there. My answer has always been, of course I felt safe. There's no way our MCC staff and partners would have let us visit them if they thought we'd be in danger. One of the reasons I felt safe there was one of the most incredible people I've ever met. His name is Boniface. If attacks or anything happen in or around Joss, he's one of the first to know about it. Even before something happens, if there are rumblings that something is about to take place, he finds out, hopefully with enough time to defuse the situation. Boniface is one of the leaders of an organization called EPRT, Emergency Preparedness Response Teams. You'll hear me say EPRT quite a few times. Uh, I'd rather not have to say Emergency Preparedness Response Teams. EPRT is a network of 270 volunteers who are mediators or peace builders in their communities. 
They're trained to recognize tension in their community and have the skills to diffuse the situation before it turns into violence. The Nigerian population is roughly half Muslim and half Christian, and so historically much of the violence has been across religious lines. Even neighborhoods are physically separated with Christians on one side of the neighborhood and Muslims on the other side. So when thinking about this question, who is my neighbor, many times it brings up religious affiliation. A large part of what makes EPRT effective, I believe, is its leadership. Boniface is a Catholic, and he works very closely with Ahmed, a Muslim. Ahmed is on the left. Yes. <laughs> and um, the other man in this picture is Matthew. He's the uh, manager of the MCC Nigeria office. When EPRT began, it was as a network to distribute relief materials after a disaster. At that time, they decided that in order to peacefully go about giving out relief materials to both Muslims and Christians, it only made sense that Muslims would hand out relief materials to the Christians, Christians would hand out relief materials to Muslims. This way, no one could say, well, the Christians are just helping the Christians, the Muslims are just helping the Muslims. Everyone was entitled to relief aid, no matter their religious beliefs. EPRT has since expanded its reach to more than just emergency, emergency response, but also focuses on preventative measures, training, and community development. Now, going back to this idea of the Good Samaritan, I know most of the time I forget how despised Samaritans were to the Jewish people. To call a Samaritan good was actually a very huge thing. For many Christians, calling Muslims neighbor and vice versa is a huge deal, too. So what does a good Samaritan look like in a context like Nigeria? I'd say they look a lot like EPRT volunteers. One day we got to meet more than 30 of them, and they shared with us about their experiences. By the way, it's very easy to recognize an EPRT member because they usually wear their blue polo shirts. The man in this picture with Ahmed is Muhammad. He's an EPRT volunteer in the village of Wase. I got to visit Wase and see how local EPRT volunteers join with teachers at schools and hold peace clubs to help teach children about conflict and how to deal with con conflict in ways that prevent violence. It's been recognized that if youth are given the skills needed to resolve and transform conflict in positive ways, the effect will ripple out to the whole community. They will also be less likely to be influenced by politicians or others that want to stir up violence as well. After visiting the peace clubs, we also got to visit uh, places in Wase where people have been displaced from their homes due to violence. Many of these people know EPRT very well because they are ones that have received some of the relief materials. This photo is of a marketplace of a displaced community. They had to leave their homes just about six kilometers away. Some of them weren't there at the time we visited just because they had gone back to tend their crops. It's still not safe for them to return home to stay, but they're still able to do some of those things that make life sort of routine. I remember feeling a sense of hope and felt very positive about everything that I had seen and heard while in Nigeria. Everyone seemed to be helping out their neighbors pretty well. So now I'll ask my second question again. How long should I think of them as my neighbor? A week after returning to the US, we heard about a bomb blast that went off in Jos in a market very near to the MCC office. I remember being in shock, feeling so disheartened after having such a positive and hopeful experience. We had seen how violence was prevented. 
My thoughts immediately went to the people we met. Was Boniface feeling as down as I was? What about the EPRT volunteers? Turns out I was the one despairing, but they were encouraged. Yes, I did say encouraged, but how? It's believed that whoever planned those blasts intended to incite broader violence between Muslims and Christians in Jas. Thankfully, partly owing to EPRT and other peacebuilding organizations, Muslims and Christians did not immediately blame each other for what had happened, but instead they were working shoulder to shoulder, helping to rescue people from the debris. They consoled and talked with each other. They became united in anger against those who were actually responsible for the attacks. Most think it was Boko Haram, but no group has actually claimed responsibility. We can see hope in the midst of violence. Even a few years ago, this type of incident would have incited riots and revenge violence between Muslims and Christians, but not that day. How long should I think of them as my neighbor? Being a neighbor isn't a one-and-done thing. This past month, there have been more people displaced in Wasay, and EPRT has continued to provide relief materials and coordination as they are needed. In some ways, this seems like a never-ending struggle. If such good work is being done in Nigeria, why are we still seeing violence? I realize even asking that question shows my own fleeting idea of hope. I became disheartened so quickly after leaving Nigeria. There's a steadfast hope that is present there that I can only begin to imagine. In the midst of violence, we are seeing the endurance of faith of people like Boniface, like Ahmed. I continue to be in awe and encouraged by that steadfast faith of my newfound friends in Nigeria. At the left here is Mugu, the peacebuilding uh, coordinator for MCC Nigeria, then me, Boniface, and Ahmed. How long are they and we supposed to think of enemies as neighbors for the rest of our lives? I have a new perspective when I read Romans 5, 3 to 5, but we also boast in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us.